0: The cancer journey is unique for everyone. It's time to figure out our new normal, and there's no one-size-fits-all manual. Welcome to Unspoken Cancer Truths with Jen Cochran, because surviving is just the beginning. Welcome to Episode 32 of Unspoken Cancer Truths. I'm your host, Jen Cochran. I'm here today with Trevor Maxwell of Cape Elizabeth, Maine. He is a husband and father who's been living with stage four colon cancer since March of 2018. He's the founder of Man Up to Cancer, a purpose-driven company that inspires men to avoid isolation during their cancer journeys. And I am so happy that he's here today to share his story with you. Welcome, Trevor.
1: Thank you, Jen. It's great to be here. I'm, I'm psyched. I'm very grateful to be here with you.
0: Yeah. I'm so, so happy. So many of my guests have been women. And part of that is that my cancer was a breast cancer story. So of course I call in a lot of women, but I feel like it's so, so important for men to be talking about this topic and having that platform.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things about uh, getting guys to talk about it is that men in general, tend to um, go into their caves and not discuss their health, let alone cancer. So, so the Man Up, that's really the genesis of Man Up to Cancer is that what I'm really trying to do is get guys to, to talk about it, get men who are going through it to not be isolated. And so I appreciate, you know, talking with you about it. And maybe we can get more guys feeling comfortable with sharing about their experiences.
0: Yes, it's so, so important. I had You're only the second gentleman that I've had on the show. And the first one was actually a friend of mine who's very, very, very private. And I was kind of shocked that he was so amenable to coming on the show in the first place. And then at the end, he said, wow, talking about this with you today made such a difference. So I think that that's true just on a human level. Like, but not everyone has that inclination to talk something through. So
1: yeah, Yeah, it's so important
0: what you're doing.
1: I feel like it's funny. Like I I like in-person support groups. So before COVID, I was going to my in-person support group, which is mostly women here locally. And a wife brought her husband guy to the group and he wasn't even speaking. She's like, I brought him because he has cancer. I'm forcing him to talk about it. And it was like, he was a hostage and then he listened to it. And then at the end of the hour, he like went off and like, and spent like 15 minutes, like sharing about his journey and his feelings and all this stuff. And he's like, man, that felt really good. And sometimes you don't know what you need until you actually do it.
0: (laughs) Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I would love for you to just kind of share your story, kind of start to present like your diagnosis journey and, how you got to, to where we are today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you the, the awesome cliffs notes from my two and a half year cancer journey. We've been trying to come up with a new name for it. Cause you know, I use journey cause everyone uses that, but it's like, it's such a tough one. Like sometimes I, I want to call it, you know, a disaster, a train wreck, uh, sometimes cancer cruise, like whatever, you know? But, um, so my journey started in March of 2018 I was experiencing fatigue, like extreme fatigue that had been building up. When I look back on it, probably like months, if not years, where just unusual level of fatigue, but I was 41 years old with a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and a wife and and a business. So, you know, what person in those circumstances isn't tired? I just didn't know how extreme mine was, right? Yeah. So, so I finally... Uh, you know, and like a lot of guys who think they're healthy, like I had not gone to my primary care doctor in years. Like I had no reason to do so. I I, I wasn't getting my physicals and, and exams like I should have because I felt healthy and didn't feel the need for it. So by the time I actually called my doctor and I was like, I'm exhausted. Like I climb up the stairs and my heart's pounding on my chest. She's like, you need to come in and we'll give you some blood work and check you out. And so we did that and she called me on a, she left, she actually left a message on a Friday night, which you never want to get a message from your doctor on a Friday night. No, um, I've gotten them. Right. And she, it was like eight <laughs> o'clock. She's like, you need to call me anytime because you're, you know, and, and she's like, don't do anything strenuous. I'll fill you in when I talk to you. And I was like, Oh God. So I called her up and she said, your iron levels are basically non-existent. Like she's like, you don't need a blood transfusion now, but you're kind of borderline. You're basically iron deficient anemic. And she said, you know, and also your platelets are somewhat elevated. There's some, you know, this is definitely not normal. She asked me if I had experienced any bleeding and I, you know, cause usually blood loss leads to anemia. And I said, I had not noticed anything. She said, usually when this happens, it's something in your gastrointestinal system. So. We talked for a while and she had me go in for a colonoscopy. And so that week I went in for a colonoscopy and found out that I had a, basically like a four inch tumor inside my uh, intestines, large intestines, otherwise known as the colon. Um, came out of that colonoscopy as a, as a as a colon cancer patient, complete asteroid to our lives. And since that time I, I've had colon surgery. Unfortunately, we, Found out that it was metastatic, that I had cancer in my liver that had spread from the colon. So when colorectal cancer tends to spread to the liver and lungs first um, as sites of metastasis, and then it goes elsewhere. But I had cancer in my colon and my liver, so I had colon surgery. I've had two liver surgeries. Um, I've done chemotherapy. And it's just kind of like been like whack-a-mole because every time we get remove the cancer it keeps wanting to come back so it has come back in my liver and my peritoneum in my abdomen area and so during the early stages of my treatment when i was going through my surgeries and everything we found out that i have lynch syndrome so lynch syndrome is basically a genetic glitch it's almost like a spell check for your body so usually if your genes work normally if you're and, and cells start to multiply and um, make mistakes, your body corrects them and is able to eliminate those mistakes so they don't accumulate into a cancer. With yeah. Lynch syndrome, one of your genes, at least one of your genes, the spell check doesn't work. So problems can accumulate and cancers can develop. So the Lynch syndrome was found out, which is kind of a silver lining because. Lynch syndrome was probably the driver of me getting a cancer at age 41. But at the same time, people with Lynch syndrome generally respond pretty well to immunotherapy.
0: That makes sense.
1: Yeah. So there are new types of therapy that harness your own immune system to go after the cancer. And the reason they do this is that Lynch syndrome tumors are highly mutated. So they kind of already look funky to the immune system, like melanoma looks funky to the immune system. And, and other, so this, but Lynch syndrome cancers, generally your cells are kind of like crying out like, hey, immune system, come get me. But, but in my case, my my body wasn't able to, the cancer had the edge for a while. Um, gotcha. Then, so I started immunotherapy in right around September 1st of 2019. So that's about a year ago as we speak today. And I have gotten to a point where my past, so I, I take I get scans every three months. On my abdomen where my cancer is and I also do blood work every month and I do my immunotherapy treatment every month and so far the immunotherapy has basically caused my cancer to go into dormancy so I'm I'm considered stable right now um, my past couple scans have shown stable disease so I still have the little blobbies in, in my liver and my abdomen but they are apparently inactive right now, thanks to my therapy. And, you know, we don't know what the long-term is because this regimen is so new. There's no long-term data, Yes, (laughs) Um, but, but we know for now that I'm stable. And this is really, I'm so grateful for this, especially with colorectal cancer, because colorectal cancer, most people with stage four disease don't have, don't respond well to immunotherapy so i'm in a very small percentage of of crc patients that have this hope with immunotherapy so i'm very lucky for that so that has been my the past two and a half years of me being a patient survivor thriver you know i'm open to all the, the language around what i am but i've learned you know a ton about cancer and colorectal cancer and others with different types and and, uh, and now I've gotten into the world of being a patient advocate as well.
0: Yeah, which is so, so, so important because I think that's one of the most difficult things for people is to wrap their head around being an advocate for themselves.
1: Right. So having a wife, especially, who's been able to uh, support us financially and logistically through this has sort of allowed me to advocate for myself, get second opinions, get third opinions um gather all like sometimes managing your disease and like getting all your data doing all your research collaborating with doctors like being an active and educated part of your own treatment sometimes feels like a full-time job
0: absolutely absolutely i and there are times when i think that it is a full-time job i remember being really grateful for my a little bit surprised and grateful for my plastic surgeon because i had seen my surgeon I was a weird patient. I knew a lot about breast cancer because I had worked with survivors for a decade. And when I, I went into my plastic surgeon with a file and was like, here's all my stuff. I don't know what you have access to, what you don't have access to. I just got my pathology on Friday. Like, here's everything. And she was like, yep, you were referred by X. I've got all that. She took my file, but was like, I've got all that. So tell me about your diagnosis. And I was like, oh, it's all in the file. And she was like, no, tell me yep. about your diagnosis. Like, I know what's in the file. I want to know what you know about what's in the file. Mm. And I think that that's not super common. Right. But that well, same plastic surgeon has over the, you know, intervening years been like, hey, are you still feeling like you're like, I know you were having an issue with Dr. X has that resolved? Or are you moving on? Because I have someone for you to go see if that has not resolved. Like she's very big about being heard. And
1: yeah. Yeah, I I think the I think this new model of patients being educated and being part of the decision making process, like being, you know, partners with your doctors is such a we're moving to that. And that's a great thing. And I think the best doctors understand that. But I think the old model is so pervasive, where you're the patient, you go in, the doctor tells you exactly what's happening, what you're doing. And you don't, you're not supposed to be educated about it. You're not supposed to ask questions. You're supposed to just do the protocol and move on. And, and, you know, a lot of people still want it that way. And that's fine. I'm not I never tell anyone how to manage their health. Right. But for me, I need to feel like, I need to feel like I'm part of the decision-making process and that I'm as educated as possible. And I understand that doctors don't want, you know, random guys going on Google and coming back and thinking they have all the answers or that they're an oncologist, right. but, but you can't, you can absolutely become educated about your disease and you can become an advocate for yourself and no one's going to advocate for yourself like you. You know, I always no. like it too, If you were, let's say you're an architect, let's say you're building a house and you work with an architect. Does that mean you shouldn't learn about design and architecture and be part of those decisions? Of course, you like, yes, you don't have the credentials, but you're gonna be part of it. And I'm not a doctor and I don't have those credentials, but I can absolutely learn enough as a layperson to be educated and part of the decision.
0: Right. Well, and with the architect, right? You want to be able to say, No, the dining room I want the dining room over there.
1: Right. <laughs> Let's we can and, and if the dining room can't be there, what are the options?
0: Right. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Why can't the dining room be there? Like, why? uh, Why? Why? Because too often, if you ask why, they're like, you know, it's, it's like as a parent, because I said so.
1: Right. (laughs) Well,
0: I'm sorry, that's not going to work for me.
1: Right. And if you don't, and if you don't have a team that can answer all your questions and embrace the idea of a patient as an educated partner in this process. So if you, don't have a team or an oncologist that supports you as an educated part of the process. That's when I always say it's time to explore other teams.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely been a theme too. And people that I've talked with, I have found that people who are struggling to make a decision about their treatment or about their next step. It's, I'll look at them and say, yeah, you didn't have the right team. Like you, the you don't have all these people might be okay, but this person over here might need to be replaced. Like, let's go see some other people that are in this category, because you need someone that's going to answer your questions. And if you ask to see, you know, this information, and they give you that information, well, they didn't give you what you asked for.
1: So, totally agree, and this gets into the man problem because. (laughs) A lot of men, and I think this is just the way that we are conditioned in our culture, first of all, are not comfortable seeing a doctor in the first place. But then they go see one doctor, that doctor tells them one thing, and they are way more apt to just be like, okay, that's what I'm going to do, and not get, not talk to other patients, not get a second opinion. And then you go to them and you're like, "Um, you know, so – so, did you get multiple opinions, or what did the doctors say and and they 'll just be like, "Well, the doctor says this, so i 'm going to do it." I think a lot of men just assume that if one oncologist is telling them something that's what every oncologist is going to tell them and one thing I've learned as a patient is that i've gotten five different plans from five different oncologists, you know, like you can't just assume that because a team you know because an oncologist does that work in that field that that he or she's going to have all the understanding about what's happening in the field, especially if that oncologist is not a specialist in your specific disease, but is a general medical oncologist, right? So that's a big part of my message is to just tell guys like, you know, just because you hear one thing from one team doesn't mean that's the end all be all of your care.
0: Yes. I, I have a friend who was referred. It was thyroid cancer. And, the, they needed like three surgeons in the room and the reconstruction surgeon. And I didn't find out until the night before surgery because she had been forbidden. It was her husband and she had been forbidden to discuss it. Oh no. So (laughs) she was discussing it with us only because my husband had had thyroid cancer. So the night before the surgery, I found out that this Reconstruction surgeon wasn't in their network. Oh geez. and I was like and she said, but that's who they recommended, so they must be the best. Mm. I was like, no. <laughs> no, they they might just be their friend. Like they might just be someone that they're comfortable working with. That we want to know that the person that's doing surgery does these surgeries all day long. Right. Like there's surgeons tend to come to a point where they kind of specialize and they do a lot of these surgeries. We want someone who does a lot of this particular thing. Even if that thing is rare, the more rare it is, the more we want someone who's done a lot of them.
1: (laughs) Yeah. One thing I hear a lot is, well, I didn't, you know, yeah, I just got the one opinion because I didn't want to, I was thinking about getting a second opinion, but I didn't want to offend my oncologist. Or I, I didn't want to make my doctor feel bad. Like, yeah. literally, people worried about the feelings of their doctor if they went and got a second opinion. And that is such an old school, and I totally get that, but it's such an old school way of thinking. Yeah. It's like, and I tell people, if your oncologist has a problem with you getting a second opinion, that is a red flag to run away.
0: Yes. Doctors should encourage you to get a second opinion because then you know that you're doing the right thing for you and that you're comfortable with them. And if you're totally comfortable with them, you're going to be more compliant.
1: G- guys spend more time researching a grill or a car or, or like, you know, the things in their life than they do a, a health challenge or a life-threatening disease. Like, I think there's a level of denial there. You know, like I'm just going to let, that's something I'll just let the doctor handle and I don't need to learn about it or fear, right? Whereas yeah. something else, they're, they're have no, they have no problem spending days on end researching.
0: Human beings take better care of their cars and are more connected to their phones <laughs> than they are their bodies. That's I say scary. that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I agree. It's so true. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Trevor and I are going to keep talking about this topic. There's so many amazing things to chat about. So we'll be back in just a moment. Stay with us. Hi, Jen here. I hope you're enjoying the show. When I finished treatment, I discovered survivorship was way more challenging than I ever expected it to be there are a lot of things no one prepares you for. I attended one support group meeting and knew that was not for me. The more people I talked with, the more I realized I was not alone. This podcast is a forum for people to share their cancer stories from start to present. And my Facebook group is a gathering space for people to find positive inspiration on the not so positive days in a community of people who understand the challenges of this journey. So come on over and join the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and be part of the conversation. When you see the question, how did you hear about us, be sure to mention this podcast episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Welcome back. I'm here with Trevor Maxwell, and we have been talking about his colon cancer journey and his organization that he started man up to cancer. So we covered a lot of great topics in the first half of our chat here. And I wanted to circle back on immunotherapy, because I think this is something that's kind of still really new. And I have another friend who received the same immunotherapy for a completely different condition and the immunotherapy that you had referred to earlier was opdivo and i think the percentage effectiveness for opdivo seems to be around 25% and but then it seems like for people who where it really works it works really really well and my my friend who had received it is also having amazing results from it so that is so amazing. How did you come to start to get the Optivo? And was that like through a trial or was that something that was available more mainstream for you? How, how did that work?
1: Sure. Um, and, and, and just before I lose it, in terms of the efficacy, you know, I think a, a lot of it still does depend on tumor types. You know, a lot of the solid tumors colon, um, breast, uh, other solid tumors are kind of lagging behind. Like, so I I don't have percentages on efficacy for my cancer type or other cancers. I I do know again, that only about 5% of people with stage four colon cancer tend to benefit from the currently available immunotherapies, which is still really low. Yeah. So, so most of my friends who have I have a lot of friends who are stage four colon cancer like I am, because that's my network. And almost all of them, they're not eligible or they wouldn't benefit from the immunotherapies, which is why there's so many trials happening with new immunotherapies or the immunotherapies plus other agents. So there's so much going on in that space to kind of bring that up for my category. Um, but, but as you mentioned, for the people that that are candidates for it, like me and your friend, it's a complete game changer. We've gone so for me, for example, before this immunotherapy option, which has come along really in the past decade, I would have I would not have that option. I would just have the standard of care options and and I would not really have the realistic hope that I have right now like so it's been it's been amazing. I first learned about it when I got diagnosed with Lynch syndrome because my doc, one of my doctors you know, mentioned to me, she said, well, because you have Lynch syndrome and because you have this biology that we refer to as MSI high, that means that you are probably going to be, if you need it, you would be a good um, candidate for this new immunotherapy. And so the FDA approved the Opdivo and Opdivo plus Yervoy for people with MSI high, stage four colon cancer, they, the approval for this actually came in 2018. So literally within the past couple of years. So before a couple of years ago, I would have needed to be on a trial or, or other circumstances. But because it's approved, I'm able. To, I started it right here at my local cancer center in Maine, and it was insurance approved, FDA approved, and so now it's part of that. Standard of care for people in my category.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. A similar thing happened for me with Progetta because I'm HER2 positive mm-hmm. and Herceptin had been approved and had been in trials and had been going on for about a decade when I was diagnosed. And about a, I think it was days before I met with my oncologist. Progetta had been approved for adjuvant therapy to be given with Herceptin Mm. um, with chemo. Um, So I got it for like 18 weeks. And in the years since, it has now been approved. They've increased it to be administered with for the entire duration of Herceptin, which is a year. Um, So now they've added progetta. So instead of getting Herceptin for a year, you get Herceptin and progetta for the full year because they've found in, in the years that have passed that, that um, getting it for that extra time reduces recurrence even more. Yes. So the research is just, it's constantly changing And it's interesting because I feel like our doctors, you know, our doctors are as good as their experience, right? Right. Like if a doctor has experience or has a colleague who's had experience and they are how, depending on how they're networked, depending on where their interests are, all of those things come together. You know, we touched on this in the first half that there's that kind of old school thought that doctors are all knowing and they're just not. Right. (laughs) They know what they know and how curious they are and and are willing to be on our behalf really dictates (laughs) how creative we're able to get and being able to get access to new trials and because that's how we learn.
1: Right. And I've been lucky to have, not only to have great doctors, but also doctors that were willing to say that they don't know what they don't know. Yes. Which is (laughs) so
0: important. I am much more trusting of that than someone that's like, nope, it's my way or the highway. Okay.
1: (laughs) And, and And I would say with immunotherapy, I think where the whole field is trending is that, so tumors like mine are considered hot. So hot tumors are tumors that are immunogenic. They, they are crying out, like I said before, to the immune system to, hey, if you add in maybe one more thing, we're going to attack this. But most tumors, most solid tumors are cold tumors. So even when you add in immunotherapy, the immune system just doesn't respond. And I, so the whole field is trying to figure out how can we develop new immunotherapies or combinations that can take a cold tumor environment and make it hot. So that these drugs can go in there and and your immune system can go attack and eradicate this cancer. And that's what's super exciting for me and what needs to happen because I want my friends who have all these cold tumors to have just as much hope as I do, you know?
0: Right. Well, and HER2 positive is kind of in that same category from an immunotherapy perspective because of the way those tumors pull their fuel. Yeah. So then you can target them and they right? They pull the immunotherapy as their fuel. So, yeah, right. it's it's such a fascinating field and so important to ask those questions like what's going on in research and what are the potential options.
1: Well, right and it gets back to education because I'll ask some of like the guys that come in my group, I'll say so they'll say, well, I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer. And I'll say, are you MSI high or are you MSS? Which is a critical, that's a critical for knowing if you're a immu- immunotherapy candidate. And they'll say they've never heard of it. Most yeah. of them will say they've never heard of it. So this education piece and getting getting to know your biology and your disease is critical for finding the best option.
0: Yeah, I can totally relate because people will say to me, oh, I... I had a friend that had breast cancer and she died mm. or, and I'll say, Oh, what kind? Breast cancer.
1: Yeah.
0: And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and of course at that point you just let it go. Cause they're. Right. but there's when people say they've been diagnosed and I ask what kind and they're not sure, or like you ask about a marker and they don't, they've never heard of that marker. It's like, okay, well, this is what that is. Like, it may or may not matter to you. And then they're like, Oh, well, I'm going to ask about that thing because I should probably know.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) And it's just really interesting. The whole process. And some doctors are great communicators and other doctors are not. And some doctors are great clinicians. You know, they're Mm. great diagnosticians. My, Husband's GI doc. he cracks me up because he like social skills a little bit lacking. <laughs> but his fascination of like a tricky case, oh yeah, is hilarious. He's like, had a colonoscopy this morning, and there was X, y, and Z going on, and it was so fascinating. and he's so excited. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, I don't care if he asks me how I am today, because if I have something weird going on, he's going to dig into what it is.
1: Right. I'll take that all day.
0: Right. Like, I can deal with the fact that he doesn't care how I am. Yep. (laughs) Like, that's very secondary. If he's going to be excited about my weird case, I'm okay with that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Agreed.
0: Which might seem weird to some people. And I'll say, you know, this doctor is great. If you need someone who's going to be warm and fuzzy and hold your hand, probably not for you. If you want someone who, like, is really great at what they do and really knowledgeable in their field. And you're okay with a lack of warm fuzziness. Right. I would go there. If you want the warm fuzzy person who's also good but heavier on the warm fuzzy. You want this person over here. It's all relative.
1: It's all relative. Absolutely.
0: Which then kind of brings me to the other topic that we were talking about off air and that's support groups. Mm. And I feel like support groups kind of run the gamut. Like there's support groups that really help with the processing of things. And then I've seen other situations where like six months on someone still kind of got the same complaint. And then I am left thinking, okay, how, how, what would help you with this? So I would love to hear, cause I know you're very pro support groups and I think that yeah. that's fantastic. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your experience there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with your perspective on wanting support groups to be productive and sort of move you along a path so that you're not stuck in the same place constantly. You know, My experience with support groups has been excellent. I am lucky to live here in Maine where we have something called the Dempsey Center, which is uh, Patrick Dempsey created a center up here. It's got multiple locations now and also online where you can do. So I do individual counseling and I've done group support through the Dempsey Center. And before COVID, I was doing it in person. And that's where I really, that support group was where I really processed a lot of a lot of the stuff that I was going through emotionally with my cancer. And a big part of that process for me was grief. I I really had to grieve the Trevor that I knew and loved before cancer and kind of shed my skin a little bit and get to know the new Trevor that was coping with cancer and the group support was actually the place where I, I didn't know I needed that, but that's kind of what came out and that's what brought that out of me. And, and so just having, it was a, it was a safe place where I could go and work through that and have people there to have my back. And what I, but you know, what I noticed there was that it was usually women in the group, you know, there was usually, let's say my group was like 12 people. It'd usually be like eight or nine women, maybe two or three men. And so that was another reason why, as I started, as my mental health started to improve and I'm like, wow, this group has been so important for my own journey. I wish more men would feel comfortable accessing it. And and like I always say, like maybe talk therapy or group therapy can look a little different you know it doesn't always have to be the same, but I really feel like guys have this we have emotional needs that we're not addressing, yeah, and for, me, for me group was you know and continues to be when I do make it back to, but now I go back often just to to help others, mostly, and I still get a lot out of it personally, but I could also just be there for people, especially people who are newly diagnosed um, but yeah, so that's m- my own experience was that it was tremendous help um and i and I encourage especially, you know, part of my mission now is to encourage men to, that it's okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to reach out. To me, it represents strength. If, if you kind of admit that you might not be able to do this all on your own.
0: Absolutely. And I think we go through seasons. Mm-hmm. We, we go through seasons of, you know, it may be the initial part that is is troublesome. Or it might be the treatment part and the effects that it's having on your body that you weren't Mm -hmm. expecting. You know, you mentioned whack-a-mole earlier. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like the entire cancer treatment process is a big game of whack-a-mole because you're Mm -hmm. getting treatment and then the side effect pops up and then we have to deal with that. And then we deal with that. And then the dealing with that, like fix the problem, but then something popped up over here and that can take a toll and sometimes we make it through that and then there's some later thing where we think we're kind of over the all the hurdles and then you know a a brick wall pops up in front of us and then that's the thing that kind of knocks us back and we can have those seasons of things are going really well and I'm good with everything and then oh brick wall. Maybe I should call the counselor or go in and visit a support group and yeah, be able to talk through those things.
1: Yeah, one of the things for me is my scans. You know, I scan, I do scans every three months, and I still get my blood work. And you know that trauma and that and that, stress, that PTSD. Like the other day, my I got a call from my cancer center, and they just wanted to schedule my MRI. But sometimes when my phone rings and I see their number on the screen. My heart, my, my stomach will turn and my heart will go up into my throat because I've gone through so many stressful situations and bad news that there's that piece of me that's like, when's the when's the other shoe going to drop? Like, is this my oncologist telling me something I don't want to hear? Like, and I know that that's a lot of that's just irrational thinking based on stress and trauma but it's still it happens it's there i i admit it like i have anxiety i have health anxiety that gets triggered
0: well and it was so crazy to me when i was prepping for my ted talk last year i came across an article from december of 2018 and it was a survey in the new england journal of medicine and they were surveying and i'm using air quotes here <laughs> they were surveying cancer survivorship conditions and it was conditions that long lasting and late occurring effects of cancer treatments. Mm-hmm. And there were like 17 physical long term challenges. Uh, and they were little things like chronic pain, cognitive dysfunction, metabolic syndromes, like, you know, weight gain, no having no memory. <laughs> <laughs> Being in constant pain, little things like that, yeah. common yeah. little things, and then there was there were five psychosocial things: depression, anxiety, PTSD, fear of recurrence, returning to work, and all five of those things were common. And I think that that psychosocial piece, like the mental wellness piece, is often left out. Because treatment is about physically treating the person and having them continue to survive. Right. And now that so many people, I mean, 16 million Americans are currently surviving cancer. And now they're like, oh, maybe we should start researching how to support these people in survivorship since there's millions of them.
1: 100%. 100% agreed. I mean, yeah, it's definitely I think we are evolving and, and folks like us are having these conversations and spreading the word. I I think you know, I think the new generation of cancer patients is thinking about mental health, but so much more needs to be done.
0: Yes. Versus- yeah, my my mom had was in a practice, a breast cancer practice, and they had within a single practice, they had radiology they had the breast surgeon a radiation oncologist a medical oncologist and a psychiatrist and you were required to meet with everyone and you were required to have that check-in like right. how are you doing right what support do you need what support do you have what support do you need like they did the whole like evaluation and I thought that was so needed we should have that incorporated into practices
1: yeah absolutely and 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 as men a lot of us are taught to not need that so we are taught to suck it up be tougher don't burden others you can handle everything on your own and then all of a sudden you know you get cancer and then it's like all those messages like kick in and so it's a lot to overcome, like we need to convince guys that the, all those messages are are outdated. Yes, it's great to be tough and to handle your own stuff and, and that's fine when you're talking about simple things, <laughs> like DIY things, but when it comes to cancer, it's not a solo gig. No. Like, you need to reach out, you need to accept help, you need to get supports, everyone, every cancer patient. So, so getting past some of those barriers is is really what I'm spending a lot of my time these days doing.
0: Yeah, I think that that is so important. That's another theme that comes up very consistently. Uh, Bonnie McBee and I talked about that just two weeks ago, where asking for help is a muscle. <laughs> and we need to start flexing it. Like oh. when we don't need help, we need to ask for some help. Like, hey, yeah. could you do whatever, whatever small thing, like, that allows us to start asking and receiving some help.
1: Like, and that's, and that's universal. Like, yep. yeah, my mission is, is around the guy thing, because I I see a real need there. But absolutely, like, that's just universal as humans. And I do think that a lot of us are hard, hardwired to when, like, ask that asking for help. When you go to ask for it, there's like a cringing, like, oh, my gosh, like, do I deserve help? Can I ask this person? Like all that stuff.
0: Yeah. The worthiness, the, it's, it's really interesting. And I wonder if our generation, cause we're in the same, we're not yep. that far apart in age. I wonder if we suffer from that a little bit more. I'm not sure, right? <laughs> but it's, it's a very interesting topic. And I found like, I'm celiac. So it's hard to feed us. Right. Right. Because people that aren't walking that, they're like, oh, I don't know. You can't eat a lot of things. And I had one neighbor who was just like, I'm bringing you food. Like she would just call me and be like, hey, I'm making X, Y, and Z today. And I'm making enough for you. So just know that I'm bringing it over. Because if if she asked if I needed it, I would always say no.
1: Right. I love that.
0: (laughs) And so she would just call and say, "Yeah, you don't have any choice. I'm feeding you."
1: Yeah. I, I love it 100%. And I'll say like, what would you say to a friend? Like if your friend was diagnosed with cancer and clearly needed help, would you tell that person it's okay to accept help? Like Of course. Of course you, of course you would. But you but we're not willing to do it for ourselves because of our emotional baggage.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. In our current, I'm actually, we're traveling this week, we're visiting my in-laws and there is some health challenges going on. And I said the same thing to my mother-in-law. I was like, you know, I, at some point I had to be like, what kind of hero am I trying to be here? Like, this is insane. I can accept the house cleaning. That's crazy. Like (laughs) (laughs) that, that was not the kind of hero I needed to try to be that day. (laughs) so yeah it's asking for help is definitely one of those like universal things in my facebook group surviving is just the beginning i'm i think on a at least a monthly basis that is like a weekly challenge prompt like ask for help
1: absolutely yep
0: flex the muscle
1: doing the same in our group as well
0: Yeah. It's so important. So this has been amazing. You and I, I think could definitely chat all day.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: About so many topics. So we'll definitely have to circle back and do this again, but share with the listeners your, or your group. And if people come over to unspokencancertruths.com, they'll be able to access the resources to get in touch with you via your group. I'll have you share that
1: yeah uh, thank you again uh, and we could speak all day for sure so I'd love to circle with you. Um, just go to manuptocancer.com that's the easiest way to get involved with our community. I have a podcast, resources on the website, some Q and A's. and if you're a man and you're going through cancer, if you're impacted by cancer, whether you're a patient, caregiver, long-term survivor, we have a private Facebook group. you can also just go to manuptocancer.com you can find it there. You can come into that community as well. So yeah. So come check us out. And it's very personal. We we care about every single person who comes into our community. And um, we just want we want men and the people, men facing cancer and the people who love them. We want you to know that you are supported and you don't have to go through this alone.
0: Absolutely. No one should go through this alone.
1: Yep. Thank you, Jen. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. A big thank you to Trevor for sharing his story and lighting the way for others to do the same. It's so true what he said about sometimes not knowing what we need until we stumble upon it. I think that's such a strong truth for cancer survivors. We often are not present to what will help us the most until we bump into it. Then we can't stop talking about it. One of the truths that we did not circle back on during our chat today is the importance of regular checkups. Trevor and I were both diagnosed from routine physicals. In his case, he was feeling off. In mine, I appeared to be in the best shape ever. It was the specialty appointment I was due for that showed the issue. For that reason, I want to encourage you to schedule your annual checkup, even if you're a few years behind. Call today, then do the other things recommended for your age. I know Trevor will agree when I say, we want people to stay out ahead of these challenges, When we have early detection, less interventions are needed. That's our episode for this week. I'll be back on September 16th. I hope you'll listen in. In the meantime, come on over to the Facebook group, Surviving is Just the Beginning, and let us know what appointments you're getting caught up on. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.